This is just an exciting opportunity to talk about the issue of fear in our lives and in our society, things that are currently happening, but also it's a timeless issue that saints of the past dealt with as well, which is how to stand firm and be confident in the Lord in the midst of a particular time of wickedness. And I just got back a few weeks ago from a trip to Germany and Amsterdam. And I went with my dear friend, who I used to travel with when we were both single. And she just became a widow this year. And my husband does not like to travel. So this became the perfect opportunity for the two of us to go and do what we used to do. And we called it the Courage Tour because while in Berlin, we went to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's house, and he was a pastor, theologian who resisted Hitler, and it cost him his life. And then south, we went to the Martin Luther sites, and he took on the entire religious world and became a hero of the Reformation. And then we went to Amsterdam, to Corrie ten Boom's house. And if you don't know her, many of you do, she and her family hid Jews during the Holocaust. And her book, of course, is a must read. If you've never read The Hiding Place, even if you have, ladies, I encourage you to go back and read it again. Well, the timing was quite extraordinary because we flew to Germany one week after Hamas attacked Israel. And a couple of days into the trip, I get an email from my husband, and the subject line says, be safe, exclamation point, and he doesn't usually use exclamation points. (laughs) So I open the email, and it says, just a note from the State Department. The U.S. Department of State issued a rare worldwide caution alert Thursday urging any American who is overseas to exercise increased caution due to tensions in various locations around the world. The U.S. said there is increased potential for terrorist attacks and violent actions against U.S. citizens. And then he signed it like, hugs and kisses, have fun. (laughs) So there we are in Germany, the country where the Holocaust took place, and then to have this outbreak break of rage and anti-Semitism sweeping the globe and a warning about our safety. But God encouraged us as he took us from sight to sight, tracing the steps of people who stood firm in the face of evil. Luther took on the Roman Catholic Church. Bonhoeffer and the Ten Boom family stood firm against the Nazis. And so we're processing this all the while pushing back fears of violent actions against U.S. citizens. Those fears could have ruined our time and the blessings the Lord had for us. And that in itself was a real lesson to me because God pushed at the edges of my fear and proved that sovereign truth that according to his providence and the number of days that have already been written for me, I'm no safer in my bed than I am in a foreign country and neither are you, State Department warning or not. But it is a volatile world. It is a frightening world. But it is our Father's world. Don't you love that hymn? And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
So one of the sites that we went to was the Berlin Wall, the symbol of communism and tension between the Soviet Union and the USA back in the day. And it was truly fascinating to be there because I was in high school during the height of the Cold War. And I remember the sheer terror I felt at the prospect of a nuclear holocaust. But back then, I didn't have the key to turn that lock of understanding about nations and evil and world wars because I lacked a Christian worldview and belief in the providence of God. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so my dear parents didn't know how to put those fears in the context of God's sovereignty No one to sit me down and say, yes, the world could be blown up many times over with the amount of nuclear weapons we have, but that fits right into biblical prophecy, and this is why you don't have to be afraid. So I stood at the Berlin Wall, hearkening back to that panic that seized me when I was 16, all those years ago, and here I am now hearing whisperings of what's happening in Israel and the prospect of World War III. And thinking, what a difference. Because as a Christian, I know I have nothing to fear. So take heart, you moms who are raising children in these challenging times. You have all you need to frame your kids' understanding of the world and help them prepare for the future. And that is quite a privilege. So our topic this morning is how we are to face this onslaught of wickedness and evil that seems to be coming at us full force. We have fears regarding our families, our children, their future, our adult kids coming home from college and denying the faith and all that comes with that. And then at the workplace, right, the next diversity training I have to go to that's going to assault my sensibilities, and the list goes on. And there is a real temptation to shrink back and to be fearful, anxious, and worried. And I am not going to share anything this morning that you probably don't already know, ladies. My aim is simply to remind you about God's faithfulness and encourage your hearts, right? Because we are to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. So our points this morning are stand firm, be God confident, because God knows your frame, he knows your fears, and he knows your future and that of your children and family. And then we're going to talk about a right response. So he knows your frame. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So says David in Psalm 139, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. And that's not just the frailness of our humanity, but what he made us to endure. So God made us with all of our testing and trials in mind. He designs us fit for or suitable to, corresponding to the work we need to do, the task at hand, and the trials we face. 2 Kings 14, 16 says, And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. Fit for war, meaning to fashion, to accomplish. God fits us for his purposes including the individual challenges that we face. He fits us for what we face. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the hearts of them all, who understands all their works. And in the New King James, I love it because it says, 
He fashions their hearts individually. And you may be thinking, I don't feel like that. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by a fear or a trial right now. Or you think, what about the future? Maybe I can't handle it. Maybe I'm I'm too weak and there's just no way I could come through. And then you fill in the blank of your fears. I look around, I see what's happening in the world, and I think I might have to withstand some really tough stuff. What about my kids? What about my grandkids? What are they going to be up against? And I don't know about you, but I've made a list. Made a list. Lord, here are the following things I never want to face. Number one, right? Well, can we bypass that, Lord? Maybe. Maybe not. But I take great comfort in Jesus knowing and identifying with my fear. In his humanity, he experienced that temptation and he understands it to its fullest. I only know a little bit of what Jesus took on in his humanity in absorbing my fears. He sympathizes with those as my great high priest. We all love that verse, right? Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. And that sympathize, that word means to be affected with the same feeling as another. He has perfect understanding. He sympathizes with that fear because he's experienced it himself in the realm of his humanity. I also take comfort in the truth that a true believer will persevere. God will keep us. He will test our faith so that you know this, James 1.3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So he puts us to the test to prove and increase the strength and quality of one's faith. We all desire that. I want my faith to be strengthened and the quality of it to be enriched. And if God promises he's put us in an unbreakable chain of his sovereign grace that those who he has predestined, called, and justified will also be glorified, and he has. We know Romans 8.30. And if nothing can separate true believers from the love of Christ, and it can't, Romans 8, 35, and then 37 through 39, we know it well. This is really also always a good one to memorize. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Thank you, I hear it out there. Sounds great. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and convinced, convinced means to be persuaded, to believe, to have confidence in that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor things to come, right? That's the future. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's convinced, are you? Am I? We need to be because by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1.5. And if all of that is true, ladies, and it is, then God has formed us, body, mind, and soul, to be victorious in our testings. Our pastor said one Sunday morning, it was a sermon in regard to perseverance of the saints, and it so encouraged me that I'll never forget it. It was one of those tender, pastoral John MacArthur moments. And he sort of leaned over the pulpit and he said, if it, whatever it is, ladies, in your mind, whatever it is, if it might crush your faith, he won't give it to you. If it might crush your faith, he won't give it to you because your faith will persevere. He knows our frame. And one of my favorite examples of this is the disciples on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus is being sought, they're, they're confronting him in John 18, 4 and 7. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the the Nazarene. And if you've heard our pastor's sermon on this or read the commentary, you know Jesus forced his captors to acknowledge they were only there to arrest him. Why did he shield his disciples? To fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And so our pastor says the implication being if they were arrested, their faith would have failed. The Lord knew the trauma of being arrested, imprisoned, or executed could shatter their faith. Therefore, he made certain it wouldn't happen. Now, later on, some of that did happen. We know, right? They're imprisoned and and executed. But by that time, they had grown in their faith, and their faith did not fail. So he knows our frame. He won't crush our faith. When Corey Ten Boom, when she witnessed death for the first time, it was an infant that, that had died. And of course, that was very common back then, much more than it is today. But as a result, she was inconsolable because she imagined one of her family members dying. And she just couldn't wrap her mind around the potential of that pain. You probably know this story, but her very wise father said, Corey, when do I give you your train ticket? because they would go from Harlem to Amsterdam. And she said, right before I get on the train. And so he said exactly, and he drew that analogy, God's grace is sufficient for the day. God will give you what you need at the time that you need it. When you have to face something, the Lord will give you what you need at that time. And then when World War II did commence and they started bombing Harlem, Corey had this terrible vision that she and her family would be taken away to a place they did not want to go. It was very real and terrifying. And she shared it with her sister, Betsy. And she said, Betsy, do you think I imagine that? Or is it real? And her sister said, I don't know. But if God has shown us bad times ahead, it is enough for me that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things to tell us that this too is in his hands. His grace is sufficient. He'll give us what we need at the time. And if you know the story, some portion of what Corey imagined did come true. She 
and Betsy and their father and others were in prison. But if you know the story, each one of them came through with that particular testing that God put them through, and they came forth as gold. So he knows your frame. He made you for this time, for this hour. Whatever particular testing you're in, you will persevere. You will persevere. He also knows our fears. He knows our frame. He knows our fears. So like I mentioned, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, and God knows every tremor of our hearts, and he knows the difficulties we face. And so the fear that I'm talking about is kind of the fear of the future and the what-ifs and those things we can drum up in our mind that's ungodly. Call it ungodly fear, like an anxiety spiral, which is different than godly concern, which is always a helpful distinction, right? There's a difference between ungodly fear and godly concern. So godly concern, this is how you think about godly concern. It seeks the good of others. It's not focused on self. It's focused on today, not tomorrow, and trying to control things we don't have the power to stop. It's deep concern for our unsaved loved ones, right? Or our kids, unity in the church, the welfare of the nation, the peace of Jerusalem, godly concerns. The fear is ungodly when our thoughts become unproductive, our relationships suffer, and we become consumed with negative feelings. Some people can literally, and it's quite true, be paralyzed by fear, just paralyzed. And they want to control the situation so badly. I know in a room full of women, we never, we never want to do that, do we? Yeah. <laughs> but the trouble with ungodly fear is that it entices us to think wrong thoughts about the Lord and to complain and be discouraged. And the really, really dangerous part is that it causes increasing unbelief. So when you start to fear and it's ungodly and then it spirals down, it it creates increasing unbelief because we start to doubt God and we think we have a concern that he doesn't care about. And that's when it gets dangerous. The Lord knows the times we're living in. He knows the waters are treacherous that we are trying to navigate. He knows you're trying to raise your kids in a society where morality is nothing more than personal preference, where evil is called good and good evil, where it feels like the proverbial noose is tightening around the true church of Jesus Christ. It's not your imagination. 2 Timothy 3.1, but know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. But listen to Paul. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's still our purpose. So listen, this was Paul talking about his generation, obviously precursor to ours, but crooked is surly and wicked. Surly and wicked generation and perverse means corrupt and to oppose or plot against the saving purposes and plans of God. So that was serious and it's serious now. I know there's nothing new. I'm sure it was difficult to raise kids in Sodom and Gomorrah if you were trying to raise godly children or the shadow of the temple of Diana 
And here we are in what seems like the days of Noah. But Paul commanded the saints in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation to shine as lights in the world. God has not changed. The word has not changed. How you are to bring up your children in the Lord has not changed. But some of that can be very difficult when we give in to our fears. And if you find yourself there, ladies, in that ungodly worry fear camp, then there's a few things to remember. The fears that you are dealing with, God is big enough to fill that gap of dread. I get very tied up in knots about the salvation of my loved ones. And I was expressing this particular fear to my friend on this trip. She's she's heard it before. But I told her, sometimes I think that that sense of dread is never going to leave me. But in that moment, she sort of shook her head and said, you know what, stop trying to take on the gates of hell and destruction yourself. Just gather up your fears and run to the city of refuge. And that's so true. Cast your anxiety on Christ because beautifully, he cares for you. The enemy is the one who whispers, God isn't going to help you. He's going to let this fester and quietly eat you alive. No, we have to take that thought captive because worry, fear, and dread are not compatible with faith. God has begun a good work in you. He's begun a good work in me, and he will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. So think of it this way, ladies. Our fears and combating those fears are part of his good work. He will help you through that to the other side. Why? We've been born again to a living hope, to a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And think about the definition of a living hope. It has so many definitions, active, blessed, endless in the kingdom of God, vital, power, full of vigor, strong, true, and life. Oh, Lord, help our minds to embrace that truth. And we all know Philippians 4.8. I'm sure you could say it with me. Be anxious for nothing, right? But on the heels of that, there is also a replacement of thought that we need to think about. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, he says, dignified, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, Consider these things. These are the right things. This is what is, not what if, right? (laughs) Not what if could happen, but what is. We need to think on what is. Pure, honorable, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise. And sometimes I think, you know, that takes way too much discipline. It's just a lot easier to worry. It is just to let my mind wander and to think about all the things that could happen and let the, the devil get a foothold. God has given us a way of escape. We've got to, when we are going down that road, and I have to do it myself continually, think right 
thoughts and think right thoughts about the Lord and his character and who he is. When I first got saved, I wanted to tackle that problem of fear in my life. So I didn't know how to study the Bible. But then I learned that there was this thing called a concordance, and you could go to the back, and you could look up all the verses, and I thought, okay, fantastic, I'll do that. So I took my pen and paper, that was the days of pen and paper, and I wrote down every single verse about fear. I'm sure I filled about a notebook. There was like 370 verses on fear, right? But I remember getting to the end of it and drawing conclusions. And it was like, wow. And I still have those moments in scripture, but when you're first saved, it's like the blush of, you know, first love. And you're all, wow, look at this. And I said, I am only commanded to fear God. That is it. That is all. Only God. And it's like the, you know, the sky opens, the angels sing, and I'm all, Does everybody else know this? This is so fantastic. But you know what's interesting? What was true then? What was true then? The antidote to fear, which God led me to 30 years ago, is still the same. It's still the same. Fear the Lord rightly and him alone and his holiness, and that is all we have to fear, and we need to fear him more than we fear our fears. So there are some really helpful verses in Psalm 112. You can even look at that if you have your Bible. It's a really good psalm to kind of meditate on, and I'm just going to read through it and make a couple of comments. It's Psalm 112. So Psalm 112 says, Praise Yah, how blessed is the man who, here we go, fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. And this is one of those psalms that's like an anatomy of a blessed man. His seed will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness stands forever. Pay close attention to verse 4. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. That means wisdom in times of uncertainty. Knowledge and understanding in the midst of confusion. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. That means we get a godly disposition. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends, who sustains his work with justice, for he will never be shaken. Love that part too. That's promising. The righteous will be remembered forever. And this is another key that I love. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He will not fear an evil report. He's not afraid of evil tidings. He's not afraid and stewing or wondering about that phone call that might come. He's not afraid of evil tidings. His heart is set, trusting in Yahweh. So that's focus on God. His heart is upheld. He will not fear, meaning steadiness of spirit surrounds him until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And there we have a certain outcome, right? A certain outcome on the end game. He has given freely to the needy, gives generously. His righteousness stands forever. His horn will be raised in glory. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So that's just a good psalm to think about, to meditate on, and believe God's promises regarding the saints who fear him, who fear the Lord. God knows your fears. 
He knows the times we're living in. Godly concern is appropriate, and there's plenty of that to be had. But ungodly fear needs to be put off. We have got to fear him in a holy and right way. And then, ladies, he knows your future. He knows your future, your family's future, the global future. We all remember the year of our Lord, 2020. (laughs) There began a sense with this global pandemic that something was afoot. In relating to eschatology, the study of last things, I love this topic. I love biblical prophecy. I find it fascinating. But it's also very sobering because it pushes you to redeem the time because the days are evil. And when COVID first happened, you know, you know what the reaction was. We were being told many things, some true, some absolutely not true. And I wasn't worried about me. If I get COVID, I die, I go to glory, hallelujah, I'm with Jesus, fine. But my parents aren't saved, and they're in their 80s. So this was when they were telling you to go home, lock the doors, Batten down the windows, you know, don't come out of your house ever again. The streets are empty. And I call my mom, and I hear something in the background. I'm like, she's out? I'm all, mother, where are you? She's like, I'm at CVS. The pharmacy with all the sick people? Like, what are you doing there? Well, I broke a nail, and I had to get some nail glue. And so I'm like, okay, mom. Where's dad? Oh, he's at the casino. (laughs) Have you ever tried to corral your 80-year-old parents and, like, get them to comply with your wishes? No. Yeah, it's not working. It's not easy. If my parents die because they're getting germs in these different places, I'm going to be really upset. So I said, Lord, I need some encouragement. So I grab my (laughs) dog-eared... version of Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And this is no joke. This is exactly what I do. I, I, just, I just flipped it open. I just said, oh, Lord, please, I just need some encouragement. True story. My eyes landed on this. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all creation for his glory and the good of his people. Again, Note the absolute terms, constant care, absolute rule, all creation. Nothing, not even the smallest virus, escapes his care and control. That's exactly what he led me to in that moment. One little request, one prayer for relief, and he answered, he is in control, past, present, and future. He knows my fear. But 2020 seemed to be a clandestine year. You guys all know the statistics, the jumps in suicide and psychotropic medication, hopelessness, crime, and the list goes on. And it's begun a lot of conversations I know about the last days, but in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. I've read so many quotes by people who were predicting the future. In 1976, the MIT computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum told his students, I am completely certain by the year 2000, you will all be dead. And this happens a lot. People say this kind of thing a lot. You pick a time throughout history when people are getting nervous. 
But today, I know with globalization, artificial intelligence, and some pretty amazing biblical prophecies falling into place, there is a sense of things heating up. I also think it's really interesting that there's a lot of polls that say unchurched people, unbelieving, unchurched people are also looking around wondering, and they're using the language that you, you know, that they, they know, but they don't know why they know it. Are we living in the end times? Is this the end times? Unbelievers are asking that question. So there's like the sixth sense in the common man. We know the future in terms of God's revealed plan for mankind because we have his word. And we can also entrust our futures to the Lord because we know him and we are known by him. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there was no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times which has, have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I know we believe that, that he's in control, but I know that there are moments when we say, is that really right? Is that really what's supposed to be happening? When I fail in that, and I do often, and I fear, I promptly go to the book of Job, probably my favorite book in the entire Bible. And you know the story by the time that chapter 38 rolls around, Job has been plagued with intense suffering, and he keeps asking the Lord to show up so he can verify his innocence. And when God comes and answers him out of the whirlwind, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world's? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And then God continues for like 73 verses to make a claim for his omnipotence. I just love it. And the answer from Job, of course, after he pours out all of that unparalleled control over everything, of course, is no. And I say the same thing to the Lord. No, I've never done any of those things. I've never sent a lightning bolt to its destination. I've never walked in the recesses of the deep. I've never stopped the waves from hitting the beach never made the sunrise. So what can I say? Nothing. And then earlier, Job makes a statement about God's control over the number of our days. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that none can pass. Job 14, 5, not one living thing is going to leave this earth sooner or later than God has already decreed. Not me, not you, and not anyone that we love. The future is his. As a matter of fact, he tells us not to worry about our lives. Matthew 10, 28 through 31, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him. Fear him again, right? Fear God. He is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's declared it, and it 
is his good pleasure and it will be accomplished. Now, I love how John Piper in his book, Providence, (laughs) I know, (laughs) but if you struggle with this issue, you know, this is number one, you know, great read and it's a lot more, but, um, but this is a fantastic read and it's just so many questions answered and it's very relatable and it's very accessible. So I do recommend this book. Yeah, (laughs) take you a while to get through it, but it's great. But he says about this verse, and this is how he frames it. This reasoning is useless if it has to do only with God's awareness of birds and disciples rather than his control. As if Jesus is only saying, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's awareness. That's not encouraging news to hear. God watches all the birds die, so he'll watch you die too. No, that's not the point. The point is, apart from your father, that is, without knowledge and consent of your father, no bird falls. God's all-governing will is the point, not just his awareness. God's knowledge is of little help to the fearing Christians if God does not also govern both dying birds and endangered disciples or endangered saints when we're feeling endangered. And he expects us to do the same, to strengthen our faith by looking at God's detailed, all-embracing providence as we look at the world. So in light of that truth, ladies, he knows your frame, your fears, and your future. How shall we then live, as Francis Schaeffer said? I believe he's the one who quotes that. What is our response to these evil days? Well, there's a lot to say, but I just chose three that have been helpful for me thinking through um, being bold, evangelizing, and rejoicing. And our pastors, I think, have been addressing this as, as we've been going along, preparing us for the days to come. But I'm just thinking about being bold and evangelizing and rejoicing. So boldness does not have to be heroic. It doesn't. It's a matter of stealing your spine to stand up for the God that you love and the righteousness that you know. It's doing the good you know to do and accepting the consequences. You know the story, of course, of Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, although I think we could give him the heroic badge. So he, that's, that, is, that is heroic. But it's simple in its boldness. Nebuchadnezzar says, will you worship the image I've made? If not, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel uh, 3, 17 through 18. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. No, no. We won't change our commitment or our conviction. And then a modern-day example, back to the Ten Boom family. Casper Ten Boom was the dad, just the owner of a small little watch shop in Harlem, and the Nazis have occupied the town. So the Ten Booms are hiding the Jews. This is just a man who loved God. He raised up his kids in the way they should go. He shared God's word with everyone who came along, And he welcomed strangers into his home, especially God's ancient people. 
simple, consistent faithfulness. Then they were arrested, and he was 80 or 81. The Gestapo took Corey, Betsy, and Casper and others to prison, and they said to Casper, you know what, look, we really don't want to deal with you. You know, you're old, just, we, we, we don't want to deal with you. Listen, all you, all you have to do, <laughs> beware of that line, all you have to do is sign this form that says that you'll pledge allegiance to Hitler, and if any Jews from here on out come to the house, you have to turn them away. And he said, no, no. If Jew or Gentile comes to my home and needs help, I'm not going to turn them away. And they're like, okay, fine, old man, you're stuck. And then eight days later, he died in prison and went to glory. No. Will you bow down to the golden image? No. Will you turn the Jews away? No. Will you call a he a she? No. Mom, will you come to my gay wedding? No. I love you, but no. No. I won't do it. Will you keep silent when it comes to defending the faith? No. Our church, I think, has taught us some fundamental boldness during the pandemic. It really started, and as as an example to follow, will you tell your people not to sing hymns? No. Will you tell them to stay away from one another? No. Will you close your doors? No. Then you'll suffer the consequences. Yep. And it's interesting, ladies, because I've done some study on this, and the evangelical church in Germany in the 30s faced similar heat. At that time, it had to do with the Nazis involving themselves in the church's conduct, but it's eerily similar. And I bring it up because of all of the anti-Semitism and the things we're seeing now. They told the churches in Germany that you cannot baptize non-Aryans, you can't have Jews as members. You can't sing songs with the word Jerusalem in them because it's too Jewish. And then it just went on and on and on. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the ones, the leaders of the confessing church, that drafted a response to the mandates saying, no, we won't comply. The churches had to decide then, like we always have had to decide, who is the head of the church? The Fuhrer or Christ? 2020. Who is the head of the church, Caesar or Christ? The church has always been under attack, ladies, but this is our hour for boldness. I've personally never been through anything like we went through with the church in COVID. Jail time for pastors? Millions of dollars in fines? Not in the America I know, the America I grew up in. I'm so thankful for the stance our church took to be bold in the midst of persecution and to trust the Lord for the outcome. I'm convinced that God is building our resistance. He's preparing us for what's next. What do we do, ladies? Simple, consistent faithfulness to the God we love. Martin Luther was quoted as saying, even if I knew the world was ending tomorrow, I would still go out and plant my apple tree. We must be about our father's business. That's what we do. The graces are the same. We pray, we fellowship, we cherish his word, 
we be bold. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Stay close to your brothers and sisters in Christ and hide his word in our hearts. And then just two more points, evangelize, and we'll talk about rejoicing. So what we see around us, you know, I'm shocked, not surprised. People feel hopeless, though. They feel hopeless, and they fear to a greater extent than I've ever seen. Young people, like I said, and many unbelievers. And so this is a time to be a light in the darkness. You know that. People are perishing, and they need the light of the gospel. And it's not easy, but it's not in our power. It's God's power. You go in the power of God. And I think this is helpful. I, I want to just share Isaiah 44, 19. When you think about what you're dealing with, with people who are not saved, I have roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there a lie in my right hand? So deceived that they don't even have a capacity to discern a lie. And they're so blind, Isaiah says in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, when we don't embrace God's truth, we are more foolish than an ox. So that's what we're dealing with. I like to remember that because it helps me to have compassion on the people that I'm talking to. That's that. And then I operate from a presupposition that people are desperate for hope. And I use the headlines. It's a great segue. Wow, there's a lot going on in the world. You know people, you know what they say back to you? I know. Things are crazy. I know. Crazy and predictable. Do you know the Bible talks about that? Do you have a Bible? Do you ever read your Bible? How easy? I mean, you see that segue? It's just, it's just quick. You know, I'm not surprised what's going on in Israel. Do you ever read Psalm 83? And so you can start a conversation about things. Uh, my 84-year-old, praise God, my parents are still alive. You guys, I always say this, you can pray for Brad and Rita. <laughs> they're, I know, they're so cute. They're still alive, praise the Lord, still praying for them. But um, she goes to Mass every day, my mom. My dear mom goes to Mass every day. And she won't give up her adoration of Mary. But you know what she is interested in? Prophecy, the end times. The priests don't talk about it. So she'll read books on the apocalypse, Christian books on the apocalypse, because she knows, well, they're talking about it. The Bible talks about it. I talk about it. So there's that gospel bridge. And I know there are those of you who have adult kids who are not walking with the Lord. And that can be very, very heartbreaking. And it's a very tense family dynamic. I know that. I am a firm believer, though, as I know you are, in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, I have an adult stepdaughter who is not a believer, not just a believer, not just not a believer, but a rabid unbeliever, okay? And I don't see her that often. But And she's made it clear she's not interested in the gospel. But you know what? I just, by the Holy Spirit's prompting, I'll just drop, drop things into her mind sometimes. I'll just, I'll just say things. And think about, I'm going to say this, and then Jesus can bring it to her mind later. 
So this summer she was sitting on the couch and I just felt prompted by the Holy Spirit. And I just said to her, do you think we're going to live in a cashless society? Do you think we're headed in that direction? And she kind of looked up from her book and she's like, yeah, yeah, I I can see that that's probably uh, the direction we're going. We're going to head there. And I said, you know what? I can tell you for sure we are because that's future prophecy. And there's this thing. It's called the mark of the beast. And it would take on on your forehead or your palm. Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of the mark of the beast? And she said, actually, yeah, I have. I'm like, okay, good. Don't take it, you know? And then I went on to dust whatever, the coffee table. But just little, little things, you know? I, I told her once, I'm all, okay, listen, I know you think I'm crazy, but I just want you to know if suddenly, you know, we disappear and, you know, all these millions of people are gone, I want you to know that they're going to say that they're probably, or they might say that aliens took us. You know, she's looking at me like I'm the alien. You know, I'm like, hey, this took it. And so she just kind of shakes her head. I'm like, uh-huh, I know you think I'm crazy, but good, because you'll remember. You'll remember we had this conversation. I'm just trying to get her to give her things that the Lord could bring back in that time period. And you know what? If you only get to say a little, say a little. Say it anyway. God can use it. I was struck by this, this story of... Uh, The Yom Kippur War, you know, in 73, when Egypt and Syria attacked uh, Israel. And Golda Meir was the prime minister at the time. And in desperation, she phoned President Nixon's private line in the middle of the night with an anguished plea for American support. And had he, he was thinking probably, you know, if I do this, I'm going against the cabinet and the secretary of state. But President Nixon said, I could almost hear my mother's voice. She would tell me stories and read to me from the Old Testament, the heroes of the Bible. And one afternoon, she said, Richard, someday you're going to be in a position where you can help save the Jewish people. And when that day comes, you must do everything in your power. Turned history. God used it. Helped them to be victorious. Your words matter. They make a difference, even when your kids doesn't seem like they're listening at all. Say it anyway, and be more prayerful. I know I'm telling myself that, ladies. Be even more prayerful. Spurgeon says this, how diligently the saints ought to use their influence with their Lord. He will hear their prayers for sinners and bless their efforts for their salvation. He blesses believers that they may be a blessing to those who are in unbelief. Many a sinner lives because of the prayers of a mother or wife or daughter to whom the Lord has respect. What a word. We need to be more prayerful. Don't we need to be more prayerful? Okay, lastly, rejoice. We have an earthly future, however much time the Lord gives us, but we have the future to look forward to. We have an eternity to look forward to. 2 Timothy 4.8, for in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then, of course, we know Proverbs 31.25, strength and majesty are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. And to smile at the future in this context, when I looked it up in the Hebrew, I love it because it means to laugh and to make merry, and actually, it's almost like you're so confident that you can even make light of it, that in context, and I just thought, oh, that's so encouraging, because that means we are to have 
a complete trust, and it's particular to women. Don't you love that? It's particular to women that she smiles at the future. And, re- and in the New King James, it says that she will rejoice in the time to come. So we're beacons of hope today, ladies, and testimonies for the Lord when we aren't moved by what's going on around us. I don't mean not affected. <laughs> we're going to be affected by it, but not moved and not shaken. That's different. Because also remember that fear is infectious, right? Fear is infectious. There was even a principle in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, based on this rule. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brothers faint-hearted and make their heart melt like his heart. In other words... (laughs) He's going to discourage everybody, right? Take him away. He's going to cause them to be fearful. But in the same way, as fear begets fear, hope and encouragement beget hope and encouragement, right? And we're called to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted, even if, even if it's your own faint heart. So Psalm 35.9 says, And my soul shall rejoice in Yahweh. It shall be joyful in his salvation. Remember, I told you how frightened I was at the prospect of nuclear war when I was an unbelieving teenager. That's, of course, completely changed. Today, I always tell my husband, today, actually, my only fear is that the bomb won't drop right on my house because I want to be immediately incinerated. None of the, like, you know, radiation stuff, just immediately incinerated. But I love it because I can say that without fear. Praise Jesus. <laughs> so lastly, Darren and I had finished our trip. We ended actually with Corey Ten Boom's house. Oh, and if you want a really funny little video, I'll show you me trying to crawl into the hiding place. That's pretty hilarious. Um, but it was fantastic. It was wonderful. If you ever get a chance to do that, I, I recommend that you go. So we were in, in Harlem, and we're coming back to Amsterdam. So we're back, and we're walking and dodging bicycles, and we, we see and hear these two girls coming toward this other young lady, and it was so great because the Lord just gave us the uh, moment to hear this. And they walked up to this girl and essentially said, do you know, has anyone ever told you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And And the girl sort of got a little bit of a sheepish smile on her face, and she said, "Mm, maybe. And they went on to talk to her, obviously giving her the gospel. Now, whatever you think about about that particular line for sharing the gospel, it was like, praise the Lord. And Darren and I both kind of looked, looked at each other and said, I have many people in this city. That's from Acts 18.10, when the Lord said to Paul in a vision, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my city. And we, we rejoiced, who are my people, excuse me. So we're here on the streets of Amsterdam watching God work, you know, hoping again, remember at the beginning that there would be no violent attacks against Americans, but the Lord was faithful. And Just to end with Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Because in Corrie ten Boom's house, throughout it, they had Jesus is victor. Jesus is victor. That's kind of the, the theme of the house. 
He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So Jesus is victor. And it's so fitting because that Sephaniah section has to do with the day when the Jews will be regathered, know their Messiah, and be a blessing to the entire world. And that day is nearer and nearer. So ladies, if you are here, though, just want to say if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know the Lord in the kind of the ways that I've been talking about, be sure that you do not leave this room without talking maybe to somebody who brought you or talking to me. I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, but that's super important because you do have a tremendous amount to fear if you do not know and fear the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't want you to go anywhere until uh, you've talked to one of us. So ladies, be bold, evangelize, and rejoice because he knows your frame, he knows your fears, and he knows your future. So let me just pray in closing. Lord, I thank you for this morning and for your beautiful providence and constant care for your children. Increase our faith, our boldness, and our joy. We praise you. We desire to fear only you, and we look forward with great expectation for how you will use us for your glory in the coming days. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.